My dad was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis when I was six years old. I'm not sure that any event in my life has done more to shape the trajectory of my life. It changed just about everything. It changed the dynamics within our family. It changed our socioeconomic status. It changed the way I saw myself. I'm the oldest of three children, and I immediately started to take on responsibility for others, to see myself as a person that needed to help out more in the family. To this day, I tend to be a person that takes on responsibility for the people around me, I think because of those earliest experiences that I had. What I didn't know until I was much older is that shortly after my dad was diagnosed with MS, a couple of people who were close to us offered to come over and pray for him. At least I think they intended to pray for him, but I don't know that they ever actually got to the prayer part. Because before they prayed, they let my dad know that because he was a Christian, and since he was suffering in this way, it must be for one of two reasons. Either he had sin in his life, or he did not have enough faith. Now I say that I don't know that they ever quite got to the prayer part because I think my dad very quickly and probably with a few choice words ushered them out of the house. But what they were trying to do and they had bought into a belief system that emerged within Christianity I would say 50 years ago maybe 60 years ago. It goes by different names. Sometimes it's called the word of faith, sometimes called the faith movement, sometimes called David and claim it, sometimes called the, the prosperity gospel, but whatever it's called, it's a way of answering a question that human beings have been ask, trying to ask, for, have been asking for centuries, long before Jesus ever uttered these words in Luke chapter 13. And that question is very simply, why suffering? Why is there so much suffering in the world? Why is there so much tragedy? Why do humans suffer the way they suffer? And one of the common answers that has been given for centuries is a kind of victim blaming. And that's what those who were talking to my dad were engaged in as well, a kind of victim blaming. If he was suffering, it must be because of something that he did or something that he lacked. I was actually talking to my son a few weeks ago who is a freshman in college and he was saying that he also he often thought that that blaming those in poverty for their poverty was primarily an, an American phenomenon but what he was learning was that that happens across the globe it happens just about everywhere it's easy to slip into a kind of victim blaming when it comes to the suffering that people experience. And what we find is that the scriptures don't focus so much on those, that question of why suffering exists. It offers some hints, some suggestions as to why suffering, hits, but, uh, why suffering exists, but scripture tends to focus more on how we respond to suffering, particularly how we respond to suffering in light of how God has chosen to respond to suffering. Or maybe to put it more accurately, how God has chosen to suffer. And here in this passage, in Luke chapter 13, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Mickey said last week that in Luke, Jesus is always on his way to Jerusalem. And that is accurate. In chapter 9, we are told that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, to head to Jerusalem during the Passover. And for 10 chapters, Luke describes that journey to Jerusalem. 
along that journey, Jesus performs miracles. Jesus uh, teaches others. Jesus responds to others' questions. Jesus tells parables. And here, he is interacting with the crowd that was probably also making their way to Jerusalem for the Passover when some people bring him this news, news about an atrocity that was committed by Pilate. He had ordered the killing of people who were making sacrifices. It seems that he ordered the death of them probably while they were at the temple, killing them in a sacred space where they had every reason to feel safe. And yet, Jesus doesn't respond so much to to this news of, of Pilate, at least not the way that I think he was intended to respond to it. You see, what we find is that Jesus, as a Messiah, on, as one that many believe to be a Messiah, on his way to, to Jerusalem, was being warned not to go to Jerusalem. We actually see that later in this, in this chapter as well, in the passage that we looked at last week, where Jesus is told that Herod was, was looking for a way to kill him. But even in the midst of this warning, Jesus refuses to turn aside. He has set his face to Jerusalem, and he will continue to go to Jerusalem. Jesus basically ignores the warning that was given to him. Don't go to Jerusalem. There's danger there for you. And he instead turns and addresses not only those who gave him this news, but the others who are with him as well. And he takes this atrocity that Pilate has committed, and he turns it into a question for those who are around him. We're told he asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. And then he mentions another tragedy that also happened in Jerusalem. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Jesus gives the same answer to both questions. Was it their fault? Were they to blame for this? And his answer in both cases is no. He says, no, I tell you. And, and the construction there in the Greek is emphatic. It's no indeed, or by no means is it there, are they to be blamed for what happened to them. Jesus makes it clear that the suffering wasn't because those who suffered were more blameworthy than others. This isn't divine judgment. Instead of blaming others then, Jesus says to repent. Repent or you will likewise perish. Jesus takes the warning that was given to him, don't go to Jerusalem, and he turns it into a warning for those around him. Repent or perish. What are we to make of Jesus's warning? Well, I think it depends on how we choose to to interpret these two words that Jesus has used, both the word repent and the word perish. Actually, to understand what Jesus means by repent, I think we need to understand what he means when he uses this word perish. And I think initially our thought is that Jesus must be talking about a kind of eschatological judgment and eternal judgment. And if that's the case, then it seems natural to assume that he is calling for those around him to repent of their sin, to turn from their sin, because repentance is not a feeling of remorse, it's a changing of the mind, it's a turning, it's a reorientation 
of our lives. But I think it's actually unlikely that those who are with Jesus at this point in his journey to Jerusalem would have interpreted what he says about perishing in terms of eternal judgment. I think it's much more likely that they would have, they, it would have brought to mind the tensions that were brewing in Palestine at that time. The fact that Israel was heading toward open rebellion against Rome. And when Jesus talks about perishing, what he seems to be saying here is that that open rebellion will not bring flourishing, but will instead bring perishing. It will not end the way they want it to end. So if they don't change course, if they don't repent, they will face similar horrors to those of the, of the Galileans in the temple. Tragic circumstances will come upon them as well. But notice, this isn't divine judgment either. It's the predictable consequences of a certain course of action. According to Jesus, it's time for those who live by the sword to repent, to adopt his path toward bringing in the kingdom of God, the path of self-sacrifice, the path of love. And recognizing what Jesus is doing in this passage leads to, I think, another kind of repentance. Repentance for the many ways we tend to think about suffering, the many ways that we tend to address suffering. Put yourself in the position of those with Jesus. Imagine you're one of his close followers on the way with him to Jerusalem. Then you receive this news. Pilate has ordered the death of those who are making sacrifices. He has killed those who are at the temple, a place, a sacred space where they should have felt safe. How would you feel at receiving that news? How might you try to process it? When I hear of other sufferings, I sometimes find myself searching for reasons why I'm unlikely to experience the same kind of suffering. In our worst moments, I think we can succumb to a kind of blame game. They made those decisions. They did those things. They found themselves in those circumstances. They had those experiences. I haven't made those decisions. I haven't done those things. I've never experienced those circumstances. I haven't had those experiences. I'm different. And I can imagine those who were walking with Jesus to Jerusalem thinking, sure, that happened to those Galileans, but surely something like that won't happen to those of us who are Galileans. The tower fell on those people when they were in Jerusalem, but surely an accident like that won't happen to us when we're in Jerusalem. I mean, we're Jesus's followers. God is on his side. We'll be protected. We've hitched our horse, our wagon, so we've hitched our wagon, we've hitched our wagon to the right horse, if you will. We've hitched our, whatever the saying is, right? We've hitched our wagon to the right horse, uh, if you will. We'll be protected. We'll be safe. Surely we'll be safe. And Jesus puts it in with what he says here in this passage to that kind of rationalization. And in doing so, he forces his followers to look deeply into our own hearts. Such rationalizing is dangerous. It's the making of some of the worst isms that we find in our world. Isms like elitism. Isms like ethnocentrism. Uh, 
isms like anti-Semitism, racism, paternalism. It infects the soul and metastasizes to every part of our personalities, making us cold, uncompassionate, and eventually even cruel people. But Jesus' message in this passage is clear. Don't blame those who suffer. Instead, we're to let his journey to Jerusalem and ultimately the cross change the way we see the suffering of others. I think what Jesus offers here is an extension of loving neighbors and enemies, which we looked at a few weeks ago in Luke chapter 6. So when Jesus says repent, one of the things I think he is saying here is don't judge others. Love them. Love not just your neighbors, but also love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Before you try to take the speck out of someone else's eye, take the plank out of your eye. Reorient yourself to love rather than to judgment because such judgments bring perishing. I think this is part of what Jesus is saying when he says you will likewise perish, that with the same measure you judge, you will be judged. So don't judge others. Now again, I don't think that Jesus is talking about here a kind of divine judgment, but I think he is talking about what judgment does to our hearts, what it does to our souls, what it does to our minds, what it does to our lives. And so we are, respond, we are to respond to the sufferings of others differently than we might initially be prone to respond. And then Jesus finishes by saying that there is hope. He immediately goes from saying to repent or perish to a parable, a parable of a fig tree that is not producing fruit. And so the owner of the tree wants to cut it down, but the gardener beseeches. It's not a word you hear every day anymore, but he, he urges the owner to give the tree one more year. He says that he'll go above and beyond. He'll dig around it and put manure on it, which was not something you did to get fig trees to bear fruit, but he'll go above and beyond, giving the tree one more year to bear fruit. And here we see a theme that we find in other parts of the New Testament. Actually, we find throughout the New Testament, which is that we have received such grace from God that judgment has been delayed. And because we've received that grace from God, because we've, see, we, we've received room to change, time to turn, we are to offer that same grace to others, that same room to others, that same understanding to others, the same time to others. <clears throat> this is part of what it means to be Jesus's disciple, to be on the journey with him. And for Luke, discipleship is a journey. We see it not only here in the gospel, but we also see it in the second volume. The same author wrote the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts also, we have several chapters devoted to a journey, this time the journey of the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul is also going to Jerusalem and then eventually to Rome. And like Jesus, the Apostle Paul also has multiple warnings. Don't go to Jerusalem. Suffering awaits you there. And like Jesus, the Apostle Paul refuses to turn away from the suffering that is waiting for him. He goes headlong into that suffering. And I think we see here something about Jesus as a Messiah, and we see here something about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. To warn Jesus not to go to Jerusalem, to think that he will heed that warning, is to misunderstand his Messiahship. 
that the suffering, that suffering is what the Messiah is supposed to do. Suffering is what Jesus, as the Messiah, who is God the Son, has chosen to do as a demonstration of his love. And to think that disciples who suffer are somehow getting it wrong is to misunderstand discipleship. Because suffering is part of discipleship. Or if you will, suffering is what disciples are supposed to do. That we demonstrate our love for others by serving them, by sacrificing for them, by laying down our lives for them. As a pastor, I have done premarital counseling for I don't know how many couples over the years. And in the early days of doing premarital counseling, normally it was about eight sessions of premarital counseling. And then at the last couple of sessions, we would start talking about the ceremony. And when we would get to the vows, I would, in my office, I would have them turn toward each other, and I would say, now, when we get to this point, you're going to turn toward each other. You'll maybe hold each other's hands. You'll look lovingly and longingly into each other's eyes. You'll think about this commitment that you're making, about the joys of spending the rest of your life with each other, and all of that is good, and I want you thinking about all of that. But while you're looking into the other's eyes and you're thinking about the commitment you're making and devoting your life to that person, I also want you to, realize, want you to realize that you are committing to being vulnerable to that person. So while you're thinking, you are the person I love, you are the person I cherish, you are the person I want to spend the rest of my life with, also, I hope that at least at, 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 for a moment, this thought enters your mind. You are the person that is going to cause me the majority of the pain I will experience for the rest of my life. You are the source of my suffering. And even with that understanding, even with that knowledge, I choose you. I commit myself to you because suffering for others and with others is part of what it means to love them. It's part of the commitment of love, that love is a willingness to suffer for others. Or as Jesus says earlier in Luke, as disciples, we are to take up our crosses daily and follow him. Suffering isn't a lack of faith. It's part of the journey. It's part of being Jesus's disciples. Jesus entered into human suffering, taking it upon himself. And as his disciples, we aren't called to blame others when they suffer. We are called to suffer with them, to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, to sacrifice for them, to serve them. And as we identify with the sufferings of others, the love of Christ begins to soften our hearts. We begin to live into and up to our calling to be his disciples. We become those who truly love. Thanks be to God.